You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Tony Greer, TG Tuesday. Welcome back. How are you, Ash? Good to see you, baby. I'm doing great. I know you've got a lot on your mind. I've got a lot on my mind. Let's jump right in. Commodities super cycle. Oh, man. Music to my ears, right? I mean, we've been talking about this for months now, being positioned in natural resources, and we are now in the sort of power curve of the trade, right, where we're seeing actual breakouts. We're seeing new prints and new highs. It feels like the commodity complex is student body up and to the right. Right. We've now got the support of natural gas with the infrastructure um, situation in Texas. Right now, all of a sudden, we've got electricity and power in everyone's focus. And I think that's huge. And I think that's part of why the fossil fuel sector is rallying today. And solar stocks, for example, aren't. You know what I mean? I think it's a little bit of the market saying, you know, let's not write off fossil fuels for dead just yet. Because clearly, nature, Mother Nature has a way of exposing the value of fossil fuels. And I think that's something that they're showing us in Texas right now. You know, it's a really hard situation to deal with, with, you know, the weather that came around out of the blue that they're really not built for and not prepared for. And so now they've got to suffer the rolling blackouts. And I feel terrible, terrible for the people that are dealing with this. I have to say that first. Um, but, but importantly for us in the markets, I mean... This is, to me, a nod to, you know, making sure that your power source is secure and that your, um, you know, source for that power is secure. And, you know, this is all going to play into the commodity melt up as this develops. So you just took the words out of JP Morgan's mouth because I guess they were the most recent one to mention Supercycle. And I lived through one and traded through one. And so I know how that feels, you know, from 2000 to almost 2010, you know, that was China inhaling commodities. You know what I mean? And that really was, you know, that was crude oil going from the 20s to 100 and something and copper going from two or 3K to 10K. And so when you start to learn, you know, what this means for the markets and when you've seen them pick up a wave of momentum like they are now, you start getting really confident in your trade and knowing that you're still in the sort of early to middle innings of the trade and rather than the later ones, you know, this is, this is going to attract money. Yeah. Yeah. I think I was on the uh, trading floor at BB and T at the time when uh, oil hit a hundred bucks a barrel and it was getting giddy. It was a wild time. Uh, just to, for people who are jumping in midstream, we just ju dove right into the meat here. Give us a little bit of the context for what's happening in the super cycle, what's driving it, uh, and what you're seeing as indicators that it's happening. Sure, man. So let's, you know, to start off in the oil department, we're seeing the oil curve steepen into backwardation, right? It is just a uh, sort of function of oil buyers inhaling commodities on a sort of as-needed basis, and the as-needed basis is immediate. And when the immediate needs come in like that, the curve steepens. So you've got the front months trading well above the back months. The backwardated story is what's interesting because that keeps investors involved. When investors can get long a commodity and roll down out the calendar into a lower price, 
they earn carry on that role. So now we're getting more investment into the energy sector to try to pick up that role carry. And to skip to another sector, for example, like if we go over to base metals, which is another, you know, really firm driving force to this commodity rally because of the hard asset grab, because of currency um, dilution and sort of debasement that we're seeing all over the place. But in the base metals markets, you're seeing now the aluminum and copper curves really steepen up, right? And this is sort of those stories of, you know, the commodity players can't get sh caught short without commodities. So they're going right to the spot markets. They're buying what they need on a last second basis. And this is the dynamic that sort of gets things going and keeps the backwardation in check. So that change in dynamic attracts investors. It you know, gets you paid on the roll when you roll out the calendar. And now we've got that going on in two really main, main drivers of the commodity complex. When you throw on top of that, the fact that grains have really changed and this, the whole complexion of the grain markets changed coming into this year where we still got China, a massive buyer. We've got prices finally spiking. Looks like we turned out of a 10-year bear market, as we've discussed. When all of these things come together, Ash, the, the consumers of commodities go into a little bit of a panic, quite honestly, mm. right? Be Think about it. If you are, you know, you need to consume uh, crude oil and gasoline to fuel your truck fleet, right? The price is starting to get away from you. It's starting to get away from you with some momentum now. Now right. you're looking, you're looking at the curve, and you're seeing the curve steepen up. So all I'm saying is this: this drives commodity traders to action, right? Where where they want to start to secure their supply down the road, and so they'll start buying the back months as well. That may affect the curve a little bit, but. Given the situation, we're going to maintain this backward-aided state for a while now, it seems like, in base metals and in crude oil. And you know, when commodities start picking up steam, they tend to trend in a straight line longer than anybody thinks that they can. Mm. Right? I I've seen so many people just take shots short in commodities just based on it's gone up so far so fast. And that's not necessarily always a good plan, especially when you're finding shortages in things of of shortages of commodities that people need to get their hands on. You know, we yeah. saw what happened with that sort of electricity shortage. If you saw some of the price spikes, you know, down in Texas of the cost of electricity because they hadn't anticipated that much demand. So they've got to try to import some power. And, you know, those are the exact type of bullish scenarios that keep the backwardation in the commodity complex and keep the uh, commodities rallying. Obviously, we've got the stock starting to follow suit now. We've got to move to a new high in XLE, a new high in OIH, which are, excuse me, which are exploration and production stocks, and then oil services stocks. We've got a new high in the London Metals Exchange Index, which is the measurement of base metals. We're seeing Freeport and Alcoa start to trend higher. You know what's going to be interesting. The point that I'm waiting for, Ash, is for the point when all of the investment banks finally go. You know, student body right, we've all got to be long commodities. That's when you're going to see a big momentum push in this cycle. And that's going to be eventually something that I'm going to look to sell into and take profits, but not yet. Not yet. This is going to persist, I think, for, for time to come. Yeah, so many good points there, so much important information. And I remember it back in those heady days, what was it, 2006, 2007, 2008, uh, talking about prices staying elevated uh, longer than people suspected they would. Uh, if you went short, you got whacked. Yeah. Exactly. And then, you know, you're trying to get short into a backwardated commodity. So now you're paying up to stay short. It becomes a very expensive proposition. Yeah. Negative roll yield on the shorts if, uh, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. 
So Tony, let's now that you broke down the thesis for us, let's get nuts and bolts. How are you playing this? What kind of trades are you putting on to take advantage of this? Yeah, you know, I, I'm, I'm sticking to my knitting, Ash. It's one of those things where, um, you know, the morning navigator, the sign on the front of the morning navigator is very clear, right? I'm a transportation, energy, and commodity trader. Um, I'm okay letting things outperform me, like technology and things that I may not have as good a handle on. But when I stick to the natural resources base, I'm okay with a little bit less volatility and maybe even a little bit less performance if I think I've got the trade right. And so, you know, we've been piling into names like Freeport McMoran. We've been in for a long time. We piled into the energy space in XLE. We piled into ExxonMobil. Um, which I think is really relevant as they pivot to service, um, you know, the green energy push by figuring out how to um, deal with carbon storage, which is going to be a major element of, um, you know, the green revolution, essentially. So, you know, I, I feel like everything is starting to happen now, Ash. It's hard for me to talk about it while it's happening. It's much easier for me as a trader to talk about it before it's happening. And say, right. look, this is this is my passion now. This is what I see. And now that it's transpiring on the screens, I'm in a little bit of a sit back mode, but I'm going to be getting ready to take profits in certain names at a certain time. Right, right. now, I'm like I said, we're waiting for another push of energy into the commodity space in general, and I think that's going to get us into the next leg of the trade. Well, you know, to exactly that point, Tony, what do you think about equity valuations across the board? Uh, sometimes I, I wonder, some of the folks on the other networks, sometimes they lose the forest for the trees, it seems. You look at the one, three, five-year chart on all the major U.S. equity indices, uh, NASDAQ, S&P 500, uh, Russell 2000, you name it, the Dow, all up and to the right. Um, give us a sense of what your, your overall position is on where these valuations are right now. Well, you know, I've kind of thrown the valuation game out the window in terms of like, you know, uh, just a strict, <laughs> you know, multiple earnings per share multiple, because that's not the type of market that we're in right now. Right. You know what I mean? If you've seen Bitcoin trading 50K and you see, um, you know, banana duct tape to a wall trading 100K at Miami Art Basel, you know that we are not in the same world right now. Right. So, um yeah. With that point for equities, you know, Ash, I'm trying not to let out of my mind that it was just last year that the Fed doubled the balance sheet. Right. I would not expect the securities markets to adjust to the doubling of the U.S. Federal Reserve balance sheet in less than one or two years time. In fact, I would imagine that that's a three to five year adjustment. So that's kind of how I'm looking at things with, you know, the Fed going from four to seven trillion last year. I look over and I see Janet Yellen just elected a clean energy czar at the Treasury. Right. So now they're sort of, to me, inventing ways that they're going to be able to continue to provide stimulus, whether it be in the form of stimulus checks, low rates, you know, dovish Federal Reserve, no matter what, it seems to me like that is all going to be coming. Right. And so if I'm, living this trade from the mindset of markets haven't even gotten a chance to adjust to the Fed doubling the balance sheet. And then I look over at the Treasury and I see they're putting in officers that are likely to come up with more reasons to add to the balance sheet. And now we're going to be addressing climate change via the Treasury and via the Federal Reserve. And so I just feel like central banks are building in room and reason to have something in their back pocket to keep easing you know, when when it doesn't seem like the world needs, you know, as much easing, you know, when the S&P is taking off, we've got um, P 
PMIs at like 55, 60. So we are seeing strength in the industrials. You know, if you look at this, it just looks like the Federal Reserve is being really successful inflating the S&P. And like I said, like we just right. said, if you, did, if you don't throw the multiples out the window, you miss out on all of this. And so that, you know, that's not as a, you know, as a, as a portfolio manager, you don't have a choice but to be involved or else you've got job risk. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Yeah, this is such a critical point. And this is why I love talking to traders so much. It's like, look, there's philosophy, there's politics, there's the things you think are right and wrong. And then at the end of the day, it's what's the probable impact on price? And that's what you're crystal clear on. And that's, and that's what I think matters so much. Look, if multiples aren't what's driving the market, why focus on them? Totally, totally. You know, I do some consulting for a number of funds and they continue um, and they have been pitching to me every time, you know, the VIX dip, uh, VIX dips down to 20 or so when the stocks are rallying, you know, they pitched to me, look, hey, is this a time that we should, you know, buy some options protection, buy some downside protection while vol is cheap here. And, you know, I I'm always, I'm always going to be cautious and say, look, if you feel that you need protection, that's fine, but why are we going to go ahead and burn this option premium, right? We, we've got investments on the board that we think are going higher, and you're going to go ahead and burn this option premium just because of what? Because of an unknown? So I understand that there is the desire to do that, but I've been trying to very much um, you know, kind of guide my clients into, look, if we're in the right spaces and we're in them for the right reasons, then I think we're okay here staying long the S&P, right. you know, and, and with the view that we're going to continue to monetize, debase the dollar, add stimulus. I mean, I, I just remain bullish the S&P under those conditions. I really right. do. It's hard for me to fade that. Yeah. And of course, I didn't mean to suggest that those other perspectives uh, aren't valuable. Look, there's no such thing as a guarantee in markets. That's why you have to look at things from different angles. And when you know you get something that's indicative from one side, it's important to pay attention, even if you you know take a hedge, even if you think about some Exactly, Ash, exactly. So I said, you know, like I like I try to say, like, you know, we're in the energy stocks for the right reasons, right? We know that the we're seeing the curve backward eight, we're seeing buying come into the commodities. This is evidence-based investing. When you talk about right. sipping vol sipping volatility on a dip in the VIX with the S P carving new highs, I don't feel like you've got any evidence-based investing going on on why you're buying the insurance. And I understand that that's not how insurance works. Insurance works as something that you have in your portfolio for that day that comes along that you didn't realize you needed it. Yeah. But you know, at the same time, that's just sort of expressing my view on the tape right now, sure. that it, it, it still feels like the tape is in a destination to another level. And you know, having withstood that little GameStop de-risking that we just lived through, I'm a little more confident that there are fewer catalysts on the horizon that are going to slow us down. Yeah, and that's the point, right? It's all about the tape. Look, I, I can look at the S&P 500 PE ratio, and it's 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 elevated. Obviously, you can look at that; it continues to go up. Uh, and we could have a major correction tomorrow. We could we're we're filming here at 2 p.m. We could have a major correction today. Uh, right. But the reality is, when you look at what's happened over the last 12 months, uh, net that divot that came out of the market in March uh, and April and and May uh, around the virus, the reality is, if you're looking for an explanation, if you're trying to understand what's happened, you need a thesis that fits the data. 
That's right. And once you build that in and have that as a framework, Ash, you can continue to look around the market for evidence-based trades. And I feel like the home builder sector, for example, is, is another sector that continues to work to me for the right reasons. You know, we, we started being bullish that sector based on low mortgage rates. And then we got the boost of being bullish that sector um, with the lockdowns for two different reasons. Everybody was moving into a home office and everybody was moving out of a crowded big city because of, you know, what was going on there. So what's gone on now is that we're seeing evidence in the data. You know, we're, we see that shrinking inventory of existing homes. We see the rising median price of homes, right? We see um, new, you know, rising existing home sale numbers, rising new home sale numbers. So to me, this is a sector that I can look at and say, we're in it for the right reasons. And the data continues to give me reasons to be in it. And then I look over at the stocks and the stocks are technically giving me reasons to stay in them. So to me, that's the kind of working, um, the working function of a view portrayed right on a screen that we can sort of point to the data points and say, why is housing going up? Well, geez, let's just stick to the last three months of housing data. You know, inventories are going down, prices are going up, sales numbers are going up. I mean, there's, there's a bull market in home building, whether we like it or not. Yeah. Uh, talking of data, I wanted to show the audience three charts that I think are really important. First, let's start with the U.S. daily cases seven-day average line. Uh, clearly, a dramatic, dramatic drop uh, in the number of COVID cases that we're seeing. We flip up the next chart, U.S. currently hospitalized with COVID. Again, you see the same decline, perhaps not quite as rapidly, which makes sense because people take time uh, to recover uh, from the illness. And finally, uh, perhaps what may be the best news is you look here uh, at daily deaths uh, and daily cases, both are going down. This is just great news across the board. Yeah, 100%. You know, the market started to look past the lockdowns when we came out with the sort of first virus, right, back in November. Uh, excuse me, the first, excuse me, the first vaccine back in November. And then, yeah. you know, we've come out with a several more since then. And now, like you said, the data is starting to prove that out, right? The data is starting to prove that the market was right to look past the lockdowns and look into a vaccinated world. Because like you just pointed out, the data is getting better and the data on coronavirus is getting better. And the deaths data is getting better, thank God. And so eventually, if we get a chance to get out of this mess, you know, we're going to get that opportunity to unleash the velocity of money. And that's going to be sort of the practical application of the liquidity that's been spread out in the world that has just made it to the market so far. You know, so I'm excited to see what happens to the world when, you know, for example, you and I can decide that we want to go for a stake at Smith & Walensky's on Friday night if we feel like it. You know what I mean? That's not necessarily the case and it wouldn't be as comfortable for us to do. But when that becomes the, you know, people can get the money out of their wallets and start throwing it down on the bar. I mean, that's going to change the velocity of money. And I think that's going to change the face of the market. And man, do I not want to be short for that phase of the market? Because then you're going to start to see it all translate into corporate earnings. And, that, yeah. and that's what... We can bring that chart up as well, the velocity of the M2 money stock. And you can see, uh, obviously, when we enter recession uh, in 2019 uh, around the virus, it just collapses from a, from a level that was already pretty significantly diminished uh, from, you know, for example, the highs which we achieved uh, in the late 1990s. Yeah, we've seen the Fed grow the money supply. We are seeing the distortions in the markets. And we are not seeing it filter down to sort of Main Street, where sort of people get to go out and spend their money on Main Street. 
obviously to help out the middle and lower class who have suffered the most by an enormous factor during these lockdowns. So that's such a consideration. An, such an important story. Not everybody can do their job on Zoom. I mean, yeah. it's as simple as that. And people who can't are getting really whacked and they're upset. Yeah, I, I have friends that are musicians. And let me tell you that that, that is a freaking, you know, it, it's a different world for them. You know what I mean? It's like there's not as much work. There aren't as many places they can play. And when they go there, there's nobody there. Yeah. Right. And then that obviously impacts the wallet. And that's just, you know, one industry that pops into my mind that's sort of close to my heart. And I know that people are suffering. Yeah. Let's uh, switch gears here a little bit and talk about something that you were ahead of the curve on talking about commodity supercycle, uh, the potential for rising inflation. Uh, and that's what's happening in the credit markets. 10 year Treasury yield uh, hits uh, the highest level uh, in about a year uh, today uh, since uh, basically pre crisis levels. Uh, the twos, tens uh, spread rising long end of the curve, 30 year over 200 bips. Yeah, Ash, I think a big part of that is the, uh, the curve widening out, right? So we're seeing things like um, twos, tens, for example, widen out to 120 basis points almost. You know, that's coincidental with the breakout in 10-year yields to me, which they kind of just broke out again above 120. Um, I, I think that they are looking directly over at the inflation in the commodity markets now. And, yeah. you know, this, this is going to be difficult for me to navigate because I'm not going to be shocked if we don't see headline inflation. I'm, I'm just not going to be shocked. There are a number of reasons for that because, number one, there are deflationary forces. And number two, the governments that make up the CPI numbers tend to keep the really inflationary stuff out of the reading. So, you know, right. we may not see headline inflation, but, man, you know, when you consider that crude oil can now go to $75 or copper can go to 10 k you know, I don't care about headline CPI because I'm trading those commodities. The commodity inflation is happening. It's happening before our eyes. And I think that that's what the bond market is really reacting directly to. So now, as to me, it's, it's we are at a point where kind of like we've seen in the markets before, and I would say we've seen them in like 2017 and 2018, where we can tolerate higher yields in the markets as long as we get the other end coming up in improved economic data and right. relative and relative improvements in corporate earnings what right once we get a failure there but high yields because we've got rallying commodity prices then i think it might be time for maybe stocks to take a pause or maybe not accelerate at such a fast pace um, but generally speaking, I think these trends are, are intact and responding to both the balance sheet, which is now causing the commodity rally. And I can see the whole thing coming together for 2021. I really can. Yeah. And for folks who aren't following this two tens uh, curve as closely as TG, these are record wide since the beginning uh, of the uh, of the crisis, where it basically went down to pretty close to zero uh, in July or August, whenever it was. Uh, and uh, guys who put on the steepener did quite well. That's right. You remember the battles that we were having um, when the curve went inverted in the U.S. for the first time, right? The curve went inverted. The whole world, including the front of Drudge Report, the front of the Wall Street yeah. Journal, was like, there's a recession coming. Right. You know, the yield curve is inverted. And, yeah. you know, I don't know if they say, you know, it wasn't a signal that a that, that was the economist signal that a recession is coming. Yeah. When in, in reality, it wound up being the pandemic that showed up and the lockdowns that ensued. And so that kind of dovetailed for a different reason. Right. But yeah, but but this is 
Yeah. This is part and parcel of, you know, having formed a mega, mega top in bonds slash low in rates when that happened. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's really important that, the, you know, the economy probably wasn't um, as strong as it is now coming out of the virus, but yields were going higher, economics were improving, and it worked out for the S&P. So we'll see if we can maintain that type of dynamic right here. And I'm, I'm really more keyed on the fact that, you know, that was a generational peak in bonds when we had the curve inverted and yields at yeah. zero. I don't think that the U.S. markets want to go back there. It just doesn't feel like with commodities rallying that that's a likely scenario. Yeah, and this is the darkest days of the crisis when the fear was the greatest. Uh, look, it's yeah. you know it's always interesting when I got my buddies from high school who hit me up on Facebook saying, "What's an inverted yield curve mean?" That's uh, an interesting moment. Exactly, exactly, and that's you know, and that is the um, you know the socialization and the mainstreaming of yeah. the idea that we're heading for tough economic times. Right. And I feel like, you know, that could have been something that they were doing because President Trump was in office. It could have been a number of reasons because it didn't seem like the the economy was on its butt or anything when that was going on. You know, so that, that's how it felt to me. They still felt like there were bull, bullish sectors of the economy going on back then. And I still feel that's the case now. You also talked about it very eloquently at the beginning, where you talk about the just massive wall of liquidity coming from the Fed, the doubling of the balance sheet. And when you go back to uh, pre-2008 uh, levels, $800 billion or so dollars going up to 4.2, 4.3, and whatever we're at now, I think $7.4 with a T uh, on the balance sheet. So this is a huge amount of liquidity. And balancing that off, the bad news, uh, you know, like the disease versus the medicine and how it accelerates markets. Exactly. You know, that that balance sheet ash is one of the, the key tenants that I have sort of uh, taped on a post-it to my four screens. And that is the message is the Fed is inflating assets. If you have assets, you're in good shape. Yeah. Right. And that's that's something that we've said here time and time again. And, and, and part of the reason why this whole market dynamic has been more difficult on the have nots than yeah. the haves and something that we should acknowledge, certainly. And by the way, we both know uh, guys who in 2008, 2009, 2010 fought the Fed because they had some sort of moral objection to it. They felt that this was the Fed gaming markets and they were angry and they went out and they put on trades and they got killed. Such a good point. Such a good point. When, when, when the beginning in the first five minutes of the Fed is inflating assets trade, nobody wanted to buy it. Right. Nobody wanted to believe that it would right. work. Right. We were still and that 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 plays ash. That plays into what a psychological game the markets are. Right. Because that was sort of at a, at a we can call it at a bottom. But the mentality was so pervasive that this was going to be such a major problem going forward that nobody could really get their heads around that. The fact that they just started printing money like this was going to change the face of our economy. I think until Jared Dillian wrote his uh Infamous Bloomberg, which I, which you really got to get to read one day, which was um, about buy everything, right? He, it was sort of him picking up on what was going on in the Fed, and he was like, "Look, these guys are inflating assets, so you got to own assets. So, like, buy everything, buy stocks, buy commodities, buy bonds, buy a computer, buy a shovel, buy a gun, buy a, you know, buy a pickaxe, buy one of those things that you line the baseball fields lines with, you know." Like he was just making a very clear point. This yeah. is a time to own hard assets. And that was very poignant to me. Yeah, and controversial at the time. To totally, man, totally. And, you know, when you were reading that, you were like, man, the S&P is like a $700, $800, uh, a 700, 800 point item 
you know, coming, you know, crashing down to the earth to the point that, you know, you kind of didn't want to admit that you had a stock portfolio at a cocktail party. And, you know, that it was, it took everything to change the psyche about that. And yeah. it took years and years, but man, I feel like we got him on the run now. <laughs> You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah, look, you know, just to make an obvious point, future is uncertain, but if you want a theory uh, that does a good job of describing of what's happened on where we are today leading up to this moment, this is a pretty good one, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, that, that was the start of it, actually, 100%. And, you know, we're going back to the one-trick pony of the Federal Reserve where, you know, they've got a hammer and every problem that they see is a nail, right? So, you know, no matter what it is, whether it's economic weakness, racial division, climate change, they've got the federal hammer for that. And so that's what I'm kind of getting prepared for once the economy makes its way out of and this is going to take a while, makes it out of the damage from the lockdowns, central bankers are going to need an excuse to continue printing money. And so it seems like they're building in that sort of next scenario of, okay, well, now it's time to adjust the imminent climate crisis. Yeah. So we'll see and, how the market takes that. And by the way, uh, Biden administration uh, extended COVID-19 uh, mortgage forbearance relief as well. Homeowners now eligible to receive up to six months of mortgage uh, forbearance. Do you know what that tells me, Ash? More stimulus, more checks, right? It, it, it feels like there is, they, they have no problem squelching economic activity because they feel like there's nobody pushing back against it because they're sending checks out. And if we get into that type of extended cycle here in the United States, it's going to change the face of our country even more dramatically. And I don't look forward to it. But I'm afraid that that is becoming a more obvious thing to bet on in the markets with, with when you say, you know, that that to me is sort of a warning flash that there's going to be more checks coming, right? Because if they're going to tell you that you don't have to pay your rent and the landowner is not going to get paid on his side, you know, somebody's going to have to make up for that deficit. And I'm guessing it's going to be the Federal Reserve. Yeah. Let me throw one more wild card out, you Tony, just to get your reaction in real time. Uh, over go. the weekend, I was reading a Wall Street Journal article, and I'm just going to read this quote from uh, COVID-19 vaccines aren't yet luring workers back to the office. The New York City and San Francisco areas, both heavily dependent on public transportation, have returned to the office rates of only 13.3 and 12.5 percent, respectively. And then it goes on to say, the Dallas and Houston regions, where most workers drive to the office, are at the high end with 36.8% and 34.9%, according to Castle. Those are the those are the great numbers that they're citing. Basically, two-thirds of folks not going into the office. What does it mean? That it's, you know, it seems like whether we get through the coronavirus to the point where there are no more lockdowns. It seems like going to work in a large, crowded office is over, and I could be—I could be wrong. I could be totally wrong, but it seems like we're never going back to that. Um, I, I really fear, for my purposes, I really fear the uh, the corollary effects of that. You know, I, I fear that we're not going to go back to packed sporting and concert halls, and I fear that we're not going to go back to packed outdoor festivals and things right. like that. And those are the things that you worry about culturally. Culturally permanently changing 
around right. here. You know, there, there, we can all, you know, as humans, we're all going to adjust to whatever mother nature or God throws at us to the best of our ability. You know, if, if anything, lockdowns prove that human beings are really, really flexible and, and can get through a lot of crises. Um, so it's just a way of, of how, how completely we're going to segue out of this one. And I, I just feel like, you know, we're, everyone working from home, people realize that this is sort of a better lifestyle, you know, totally. like whether you, whether you like the reasoning or not, yeah. nobody's spending three hours a day standing on a platform wondering when the next train is coming. You know what I mean? And that's an yeah. improvement, whether we like it or not. Yeah, look, we all want to get back to football, baseball, basketball, hockey, all of the uh, all of the above. Definitely want to get back to live music, want to get back to going out to restaurants and bars and leading our lives again. But are we going back to the office 40 hours a week? I don't see it. I totally agree with you. I think this is a major shift. This is like World War II, right? This is like a thing where there's a before and there's an after because you have all these trends that were building up under the surface. And then there's the jump function where it just flips up and it just doesn't go back. The jump function is such a great call because the, the you know the home builders would I just I, I come back to this because we're on that home office space theme now, Cash, yeah. and you know with with this pretty bullish but at the time scared view in the home builders, it was amazing to see them rally from the March lockdown lows right back to their all time highs, right. And they stayed there for a very short period of time at the old all-time highs. And then, like you said, there was that like jump mode that they broke through there. And it seems like that was right in line with everybody realizing like, man, we ain't going back to work anytime soon. Right. I, better, I better get to work on improving my home office right. and, build, and building out my gym, right? Because now I'm not going to go there as much either. Maybe if I'm not going to commute to work, why am I commuting to a gym? You know, and I feel like you're going right. to have those those follow on sort of behavioral patterns that are going to change the face of the housing market of, of, of public transportation, you know, of all kinds of things. So, you know, this is a yeah. time to keep your eyes wide open and be bright eyed and bushy tailed about what can go on um, to, in the future, because I think there's probably a lot of investment themes that we haven't even started off yet. Right. Right. You know, exactly. That, I got the treadmill right over there. I haven't set it up yet, but I but I plan on doing it. But, you know, this also uh, begs the question, which is what happens to the commercial real estate market? New York, San Francisco, Chicago, Boston, these places where you got people packed in tight. Uh, do they convert it to housing stock? I mean, what happens? Man, it's really tough to consider. You know, that, that's been something that I've been trying to figure out with the death of brick and mortar shops. Right. We're, we're looking at the potential death of the shopping mall, which is a sort of cultural phenomenon that I grew up in. Right. You know, and and so while I don't really want to see that happen, because obviously it's convenient to have a place to go and shop, you know, the Internet has replaced that as a place to go and shop. And amazingly, what I think we're going to do once again as humans is adjust to that. Right. Like like these spaces might become, you know, I, I don't know what they can become, but I would say a lot of space has been converted to something different. For example, I just took my son surfing indoors to the mall right near giant stadium. And so, you know, that's physical oh, it's space. Huge. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and it was crowded and there's people going there for that reason. And I understand that it maybe doesn't generate the revenue and the traffic that a shopping mall does, but at least it's a, a sign that, okay, we can do a lot of other things with this space that will draw people here, you know? And so that, that's sort of encouraging to, me, encouraging to me. I don't really get a fatalistic attitude about what is going to happen with with the space or with the commercial space, I feel like industry and and economic growth is robust enough still, especially coming out of the lockdowns, that while there'll be a lot of adjustments on the landscape, 
I mean, I, I don't see that we're rolling into a tumbleweeds blowing down Broadway type of right. situation just yet. And let's not forget, shopping malls themselves were an innovation. I remember my grandparents saying, I liked it better when we used to go out to you know, Main Street in Passaic or wherever they went shopping. Uh, shopping malls themselves had a, had a rise and potentially maybe a fall. This is not an inevitable thing. This is what markets do. They adjust to consumption patterns, what people want, how they want to buy, and how they want to sell. Brilliant point, man. I grew up, I grew up circling my Christmas list on the Sears catalog, right? right. No joke. And then my, my parents and my aunts would, you know, fill out the form, mail that in, and then the things that they ordered would come back in the mail. So what was that? I mean, that looked like rudimentary Amazon to me, right? So we've come full circle where we're just now going to the cat. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.